You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. As you said, my name is Brandon. Uh, It's a privilege to get to serve uh, the Redeemer Network. My first conversation about uh, the Redeemer Network was actually maybe four or five years ago in a a random phone call uh, where I heard about the heart to to start new churches uh, in college towns, near college campuses. I became a Christian in college, and and I just threw out, if I can ever help, um, I'm I'm here, I'm in. I uh, had no idea that it would turn into uh, getting to serve the Renewer Network full-time, and so it's, it's a real privilege, and I'm, uh, and I'm thankful for it. Okay, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, Jordan and I were driving somewhere, and he turned with his weird grin on his face and said, hey man, I got something. You wanna preach on shame? <laughs> yeah, like who wouldn't? It is everyone's favorite topic. So, let's talk shame. Shame is actually something I am well-versed in. I am 44 years old. I'm fluent in two languages, English, shame. Avoiding it at all costs has been a primary driver in my life, uh, and I want to tell you where it came from. And I hope that it's okay to share this. I, I, I do not intend to dishonor anyone in my life. Uh, but if I'm gonna if I'm gonna preach on shame with you, I, I I want you to know where my wrestle and my battle with it came from. I, I grew up, in particular, in my teenage years, pretty embarrassed about my dad. I, I looked at my dad. He he was uh, he, he was fun. He was likable. He was a good guy, but but he wasn't motivated. He wasn't driven. And I remember probably 13, 14 years old. Uh, I'm in a conversation with him. We're, we're talking about his job, details of that convo aside, and I remember looking at him and thinking this. I am going to make sure that no one ever looks at me like I look at you. And as you can imagine, achievement became my coping mechanism. Specifically, athletic achievements, uh, success became the legs that I ran from shame on. But here's the thing about shame. It's not just me. It's part of all of our stories. Uh, While it has lived on the surface in my life, it's kind of been above the waterline in my life, uh, shame is part of the undercurrent of your story. In fact, Redeemer Round Rock's social media has this line on it. Shame is a hidden stronghold in so many of our lives. Why? Why is shame part of the undercurrent of all of our lives, know it or not? Why is it a hidden stronghold in so many of our lives? To answer that, we have to get right to the root of shame in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, 24, this is the first man, the first woman. This is where the Bible begins And it starts like this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here's how the Bible begins. This is the very beginning of the biblical story. The the very beginning of human history starts like this. Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, naked and unashamed, and there was certainly 
think, more going on than simply physical nakedness here. Listen to this quote. Of course, nakedness refers primarily to physical nudity. But one may also think that no barrier of any kind drove a wedge between Adam and Eve. With the exception of this verse, listen to this. With the exception of this verse in the Old Testament, it is always connected, nakedness in the Old Testament is always connected with some form of humiliation. It's a description of the poor, a sign of shame or guilt, or in reference to birth, with nakedness as a symbol of shame and guilt most frequent. So here's the point. They, Adam and Eve, they weren't just physically naked. They were emotionally naked. They were spiritually naked. They were hiding nothing from themselves. They were completely vulnerable and completely secure at the same time. But as you know and I know, this is not where the story ends. Let's keep reading. Verse 1, 3 1. Now the serpent was more crafty. And I want to pause right there. I'm going to keep reading the story in a moment, but I want you to see something. I want you to see there's a wordplay happening here in the text. That the Hebrew word for, uh, for naked is aram. The Hebrew word for crafty is arum. It reads like this, that they were aram and not ashamed, but the serpent was more arum. Let's keep reading. More crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, here, here's the wordplay of Genesis 2 and 3, that they were naked and unashamed, but oh, he was crafty. Oh, he was crafty, and now they are naked and they are ashamed, and the innocence and intimacy of Adam and Eve has turned into shame and separation. It's turned into, don't look at me. I can't look at me. I'm covering myself up. I don't want to see me. I don't want you to see me. We need a barrier between you and me. I can't look at me, don't look at me. This is the root of shame and it's the immediate effect of the fall. And why it sits as the undercurrent in so many of our, on all of our lives in a hidden stronghold in so many. It is the heart of what happened when the universe cracked in Genesis three. So let's define shame. Let's give a definition to it. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to read two definitions. Uh, one is from Ed Welch. She's a uh, Christian counselor with a PhD in neuropsychology. I feel smarter just saying neuropsychology. <laughs> and then Brene Brown, she's a research professor at the University of Houston. That's right, I did not go to tech or UT or a and I don't know if I'm actually allowed to be here. 
thinking about starting a support group for people like us. Here's Ed Welch's definition. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Here's Brene Brown's definition, or part of it. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love or belonging. Sound familiar? See, when we merge these definitions together, they hit some important parts of understanding the experience of shame. That here's what shame feels like. It feels like being unwanted, exposed, humiliated, unworthy of love, all because I know that I am deeply flawed. It's important to note and to know that shame and guilt are not the same thing. They certainly have overlap to them, but they are not synonymous. That guilt and shame um, have a lot of similarities, but they are not the same thing. That guilt is, I did something I hate. Shame is, I hate myself. Guilt is, I have failed as a dad, husband, or friend. Shame is, I'm a failure as a dad, husband, or friend. The functional definition of shame is this, I am not enough. I am not enough. And the primary voice in our head is our own. Not the only voice, but the primary voice saying, I am not enough in our head is our own. Some of us have parents we can hear, some of us have teachers, some have coaches. So I'm not saying that we're the only voice, but we are the primary voice in our head saying, I am not enough. And here's what I didn't know as a teenager. When I was a teenager, when I'm 13, when I'm 14, having a conversation with my dad, and I first think to myself, man, I I am going to make sure that no one looks at me like I look at you. I, I didn't know what I actually meant was this. I'm going to make sure that I never look at me like I look at you. I am going to make sure that I never feel about me the way I feel about you. I did not know that the primary voice in my head was my own, not that of others. And in using achievement to medicate shame, I think Brene Brown would say this, and I think she's right. I think she would say, here's what you were doing. You were trying to use achievement to feel loved. See, as a teenager and as a college kid, the the words great playing actually felt like real love. The the words, "You're, you're something special, you're unique. You're, you're different. It actually felt like real love. The problem is this. The problem is this. Using achievement to deal with shame 
is like using Tylenol to treat cancer. It can numb a few of the side effects for a moment, but it has no power to actually heal what's wrong. Because we grow up and here's what we know. We, we know that promotion isn't real love. That new house isn't real love. Your child's athletic or academic success isn't real love, even though it might feel like it for a moment. You can try any flavor of Tylenol you want. It won't treat what's happening in your soul. Shame is I'm not enough, and treating it with Tylenol is going to lead to one of three places every single time. What are they? Let's go back to verse 7. Start there again. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard that and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here's the first place that shame leads. Here's the first place it leads, hiding. From yourself, from each other, from God, the first thing they did was they, uh, fig leaves covered themselves and if nakedness pre-fall was more than just physical, covering here is more than physical as well. This is, I'm covering myself holistically. I don't want you to see who I really am. I, I, I don't want to see myself as I am. I don't want to feel what I feel right now. I just want to cover myself up. Don't look at me. I can't look at me. They hid from each other, they hid from themselves, and they hid from God. But look at where. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So here's what they did. They took what God gave to sustain life and they used to hide it from the giver of life. And we do the same thing. We roll through the motions in church, in community, performing like an actor while my heart is over there. It's just my way of appeasing and pretending so I can keep my heart and the Lord distant from one another because I don't want to be known as I really am. And it's just easier to go through the motions. It's just easier to hide. The first place it leads is hiding. Here, here's the second, verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Here's the second place that shame leads. Not just hiding, but hiding because I'm afraid, fear. It, it, it leads from comfort in the presence of God to fear in the presence of God. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked. So here's Adam saying, listen, because I see me as I really am, and I see me as you see me, I'm afraid of what you're going to do to me, ignoring all that you have already done for me. This is when we, I hope this is okay to talk about. This is when we, I'll, I'll, be, I'll try to be vague to not create parental conversations that you don't want later today. This is when we open the computer three nights in a row at midnight when no one's around and we shouldn't. And then we say, you know what, I'm not doing Sunday morning. I'm gonna go play golf instead. 
because I don't want to feel even more shame about what I've done when, when, when I'm there on Sunday. I just, I'm going to feel more guilt, more shame, and I don't want that, and so I'm just going to avoid it. This, this is that secret from our college years that I've never told anyone about, and I'm never going to talk about it, because if I don't talk about it, I can pretend like God doesn't know about it. First place it leads is hiding, fear, and then here's the third one, blame shifting. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So here's Adam. Okay, look, here's the deal, God. Look, you gave her, she gave to me. So I'm going to let you pick. It's your fault or it's hers. I'm cool with either one of those. Okay, then the woman, no, no, no. No, no, no. It was the serpent. This is classic textbook blame shifting. I did it but I blame you. But this is not the only kind of blame shifting that we do. If we're to fast forward to uh, Psalm 22, it's a very famous psalm. Uh, don't turn there, I'll, I'll read to you in a, in a second from it. It's, it's the psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. It opens, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the context of the psalm, the psalmist is being attacked and almost every commentator I could find so that there, there's a few verses in the middle that really highlight the experience of shame. Here they are. So in verse four, he's, the psalmist is saying, in you, uh, God, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And now here, verse six, is where the commentators agree. Um, the psalmist is taking us right into the experience of shame. Verse six, is, but I, but I, they trusted in you were not put to shame, but I, I am a worm and not a man. Every culture under the sun, worms evoke images of disgust. No one has ever said to you, hey, come look at my pet worms. Hey, I'm going out of town for the weekend. Can you worm sit for me? Said no one ever. We put them on hooks and we fish with them because they are disgusting. This is a statement of disgust. This is the psalmist saying, listen, they attacked me and I am a worm. Not they treat me like a worm, I am a worm. This is a statement of deep personal disgust by the psalmist right here. The first one, first blame shifting, it was I did it but I blame you. This one is you did it but I blame me. See, shame will lead to an unhealthy relationship with blame every single time. Either it's all your fault or it's all my fault. And if you are sitting here, husband, wife, and you are saying, you know what? Man, my spouse does this all the time. How about next time? Instead of telling them how frustrated you are, you do the hard work of, di hard work of diving deep in your spouse's heart and finding out why. It is a symptom, That's, it's not the root issue. 
Now, in bringing th- Genesis 3, Psalm 22 together, they help us identify some, uh, 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 is, is shame a surface level, kind of above the water like it is in my life, or is it, is it more undercurrent? And we can ask some practical diagnostic questions to help figure this out. To help figure out, is shame on the surface in your life, or does it just kind of live down beneath the surface? Here's a couple of questions to figure out, is this surface level wrestle for you? Um, this is not all the questions you can ask, but here's a few examples. Is rejection your deepest fear? Are you prone to insecurity? Do you act differently with different people to be accepted? Do you like being the martyr? Do you withdraw? Do you withdraw to pout versus punish? If you answer yes to any of those, shame is a little closer to the surface than you might realize. And if that's you, here's what you're going to know. You're going to know that we will do almost anything it takes to avoid shame and the pain that it brings. Almost anything to avoid shame and the pain that it brings, and it's going to numb us to our need for Jesus and the church. And some of you right now might be saying this. You're right. Some of you might be saying you're wrong. That's okay. But some of you might be saying, you know what, you're right. You're right. I do numb myself, I do hide, and let me tell you why. Here's why, Brandon. Because I've been in church my entire life and I've tried everything that you have said to do or pastors of the church has ever said to do, and you know what, it's not working. It's not helping. The shame that I feel, it's still there. It hasn't left me, it's still like the hamster wheel of my soul. It's not going away, it's just rolling and rolling and rolling. I have tried and it's not working and if that's you, I'm going to say to you that it's not going to work until you stop trying to make Jesus work for you and it won't work until you see that God did not come into the garden to crush Adam and Eve. He came in there to be near to them and Jesus didn't come into the world to crush you either. He came to the world to be crushed for you. In your place. Until you see that Jesus walked right into Genesis 3 for you, into your fears of being known and rejected. He didn't hide from the Father and on the cross. He experienced cosmic blame shifting for you. All the blame that belonged to you landed on him so that all all the love and affirmation of the Father that was his could be yours. All of it. All of it. Never-ending waterfall of love and affirmation of the Father for you because of the waterfall of wrath that poured out on Jesus on the cross. Never-ending. On the cross, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. On that cross, he endured the shame. So you don't have fig leaves. You don't have fig leaves to strap over your shame. You have the blood of Jesus covering it. And where shame says you are too deeply flawed and will never be enough, the cross says, you know what, you are absolutely right. You are deeply flawed. Deeply flawed enough that I had to come and die for you. Loved enough that I was pleased to do so. 
On that cross, Jesus took the Father's rejection so you could have his acceptance. So that you would know, and you know this, that you are no embarrassment to God. You might feel like an embarrassment to your family, but you are not an embarrassment to the Father. You are an honored child in God's family. An honored, wanted child in God's family. And when this sinks deep into your bones, when this sinks deep into your bones, you you don't follow Adam and Eve's example and run from the presence of God because you know that there is no shame management course out there that can solve what's cracked inside you. That healing, that crack only happens in the presence of Jesus. Only. There's a wonderful scene, wonderful story in John 4. It's one of my favorites in the Bible. This woman comes up, she's having a conversation with Jesus, and Jesus says to her, hey, go, go, go call your husband. And she says, I don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you know what, you're right. You, you've had five, and, and that man that you're with, he's not your husband. And she says, you're right. Now, a modern story today, you, you would kind of expect the story to finish with her leaving, head slumped, deeper in shame than she showed up, but that's not how the story ends. The story ends with her walking away, running into town, and telling him, hey, listen, there's a man who knew everything about me. He knew everything about me, and I think he might be the Christ. He might be the one I've been waiting for. She was fully known, fully known in the presence of Jesus, and it led to freedom, not shame. Then the presence of Jesus, you can be fully known, fully loved at the same time. He looked her in the eye and said, I know you. I know you. I I know everything about you. And I want you in my family anyway. And he says the same thing to you. In the presence of Jesus, the story of your life is not. I'm an embarrassment to my parents. It is not. I'm a failure as a son, daughter, or friend. It is not. I am single because I'm flawed and unworthy of love. That is not the story of your life in the presence of Jesus. In the presence of Jesus, shame does not get the final say. He does. So how then do we come and live our life in the presence of Jesus? I'm going to give two places and then we'll land the plane here. Here's the first way that we come and we live our life in the presence of Jesus. First, in worship. And I don't mean in our car singing our favorite song, although I'm for that too. I mean gathering with brothers and sisters on Sundays. Coming in together where in worship we rehearse a new story. We rehearse the story of the gospel from beginning to end. That as worship begins, you open the Bible every week. Every week you guys say, or I think you say something like this every week, but God gets the first and the last word. You open the Bible, God invites you into worship, and then you would take this moment to, to stop and, and remember that we are sinners in need of grace, and we've got an equal playing field for all of us. No elitist in this room. We're all broken sinners in need of God's grace, and then you sing about it. You open the word, and you hear about it. 
You remember the grace that God has for you in the gospel of Christ, and then you are sent out into the world to be the church. Worship every week, it re-narrates your story. It redoes, it recreates, it renews your story week in and week out, and in the middle of it, and in the middle of it, every week you come to the communion table. You come down to this table and you, you take of the bread and of the cup. And in that meal, God is looking you in the eye and saying, I am not ashamed of you. You are my son, you are my daughter, and you belong at my table. I want you in my family. Yeah, I know about last week. I am very aware of the state of your heart right now. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of you. The blood of my son has covered all that you are ashamed of. Come and dine with me. Week in and week out. Corporate worship makes Jesus the loudest voice in your head. And listen, we have a thousand voices competing for our attention. Many of them coming through social media. Voices saying, you're not a good enough mom. All right, good moms, they feed only carrots and they don't feed lettuce, I, I don't know. <laughs> this is what a good wife should be. Men, this is what a manly man looks like. Here's the model, Chip and Joe, live up to that standard. A thousand voices competing trying to tell you that you're not enough. You're not worth X, Y, and Z. And worship every week makes Jesus the loudest voice in your head saying, listen, you are deeply flawed and I've made you worthy of my love. The second place, gospel community. Gospel community. By that I mean both the regular meeting in a home for meal and for prayer two and three and four times a month and living ordinary everyday life inside a community formed by the gospel. That if, if, if worship makes Jesus the loudest voice in your head, community makes that voice echo throughout the week. That in community, fear can become courage. Courage to be honest with yourself about yourself and be known by others not stiff-arming Jesus and running from the mirror. In this kind of community, a community formed by the gospel, hiding can become vulnerability. You can look around the room and know that this is a safe people to be known by. This is a safe people to be beaten up with and broken in front of. I'll start. Pastors get hurt by churches too. My wife and I, we, we've been hurt. And your pastors, Redeemer Network at large, has been nothing but a safe place. And they are for you too. In this community, we can have a healthy relationship with blame. We can have a healthy relationship with blame. When we've hurt or disappointed one another, we can be honest about what I need to own, what you need to own, without me crushing you or you crushing me because we know that Jesus has been crushed for both of us. 
We don't live angry, just blaming everyone else for every problem in our life, and we don't spiral into self-pity because of the state of our life. We don't live a blame-shifting life, either completely away from me or completely on to me. This doesn't have to be how you live. Perpetually angry or spiraling to self-pity and then just pendulum swinging from one to the other. Here is life in the presence of Jesus. Fear becomes courage, hiding becomes vulnerability, and we can have a healthy relationship with blame. Redeemer Round Rock. There is one solution to dealing with with shame, be it the undercurrent of your life or living on the surface, and it's life in the presence of Jesus. I, I know that I'm supposed to give something incredibly practical right here. That's what they told me in my preaching class in seminary. But, but here's all I've got for you. Here's all I've got for you is a plead, a plead to live your life in the presence of Jesus by prioritizing corporate worship on Sundays, and I don't just mean physically showing up, I mean emotionally and spiritually showing up, willing and ready to engage. And then give your life to the church, give your life to living in the presence of Jesus in gospel community by showing up two, three, four times a month and living ordinary, everyday life inside a community formed by the gospel so that, so that in the presence of Jesus on Sundays and in everyday life, you might get underneath inside the root of your shame and it might get eradicated. Slowly but surely, eroded out of your life. So that the words, so that the words, you are an honored and wanted child in God's family, will echo through your head and heart all the days of your life until you fully believe them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the men, the women, and the children in this room right now. I do pray that where shame is, for my brothers and sisters who, it's not, it's not the undercurrent. I mean, it's on the surface. We know it. It's there. We live with it. I pray that they would be met by your gospel today and that today would be just another small deposit in a step toward freedom, a step toward more unhindered worship of you and that you would become the loudest voice in our head and that we would live our life in such a way that we kind of position ourselves to where that voice can echo over and over and over through our head and through our heart. We know that shame that comes with the fall like we, we, we can't just wad it up like a sheet of paper and throw it away we, we need you to have, have that divine eraser and come in and erase it out of our hearts please do it for your glory and for the joy of your people we pray in Christ's name Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.